In. No pressing announcements. Sunday the 30th is congregational meeting. Includes a budget and a change to the um, Constitution. What's that called? Constitution, I think. And uh, thankfully the sun came out like it often does in Colorado and the streets are much better. No more slipping and sliding. But it could, of course, get a little freezy tonight with the melted snow. So we'll pray for safe travels for everybody. Otherwise, we have the call to worship. Blessed is the man whom thou choosest and causest to approach unto thee, that he may dwell in thy courts. We should be satisfied with the goodness of thy house, even of thy holy temple. Bow hearts and heads in sign of preparation for worship. Let us stand and sing hymn 76.
Psalm 76, that was preached by Witherspoon, you can find a sermon online, I think, and uh, it was one of his few political sermons tied into the politics of the day, i.e. the revolution of the world. Even then, it wasn't that explicit. Thank you. 
God, we rest and rely upon your grace and mercy and your justice, Lord, that we know that all things will be made right when Christ Jesus returns. And even now, Lord, we are called simply to accept what we are put under, Lord, when we can do nothing else but to suffer. We ask, God, that we would nevertheless be encouraged by your word and the promise as we read this morning and this evening, God, that we have the fountain of blood of Christ Jesus to cover our sins, to cover our Worries to cover our suffering, ultimately, God, to, to be used for your glory and for our growth and sanctification. We pray, God, this evening for our nation. We pray for her repentance, for the leaders, God, and for our governors and our judges, Lord, that they uh, would change their hearts, that they would, Lord, flee to you, that they would do the rights and eschew the wrong. Our Lord and Savior, we pray for righteous laws and good laws, as we know uh, some have passed or still at least maintained and upheld in Texas with respect to abortion and the like, God, and other states. We pray that those laws would stand firm and create a good tradition in those areas and that the uh, wicked, of course, Lord, we pray, would change and embrace the truth of your word and protection of babies. But if not, God, that they would flee those areas as much as they threaten to, Lord, and, uh, and leave uh, the good and righteous alone. We ask God for the work of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church with respect to foreign missions. We ask in particular, Lord, for our missionaries there across the world, uh, parts of Europe and in Asia and in Africa and in Haiti, God, that you would be with them, that you would guide them, and you would give them wisdom and understanding of the times they find themselves in, in a particular part of the world. You would protect them. We think of, uh, Lord, the missionaries in Haiti and how uh, unsettled that place can be and has been, Lord, of late. And uh, precious God, we ask that you would raise up more missionaries and more abilities, if possible, God, uh, to do the work as we were called in the Great Commission, Lord, not just for the home country, but across the world as we are able. And although we are a small denomination, Lord, uh, we have strived to do what we can in this regard. Give us wisdom on our committees, Lord, at the General Assembly, at the Presbytery, and the local churches that also support, such as we uh, do, Lord, uh, our missionaries in Japan, God, uh, to know how much money, uh, to know uh, when to expand or when to contract, God. Sometimes we have to leave the foreign mission field, Lord, because it is too dangerous. It is uh, yielding nothing, God. We only have so much resources that we are supposed to husband and use correctly, God, for your glory. And so we have to redirect those funds other times. And it can be a hard decision, certainly, God, and yet that's what you have guided and guided us uh, in your providence. May we accept your providence, accept our limitations as a denomination, Lord, to be satisfied with to do what we can do with the things and the gifts that you have given us. So pray, God, for our fruit. We pray, Lord, for your kingdom to expand through our meager efforts. We pray not only for our foreign mission efforts, Lord, but for our sister denominations and churches that are like unto us, Lord, that you would be with them and that they would be faithful in their foreign mission efforts, Lord, not to water down the truth, but to preach the whole counsel of God and to establish local churches with local leaders who understand the local issues that they find themselves in. Our Lord and Savior, God above, we thank you for the blessings you've given us financially, materially, and all the comforts that we have, Lord. And so we pray for the needy among us, not only in our church, Lord, and our presbytery and our denomination, God, that you would be with them, that you would help us help them, that we would be aware of their need. And we pray, Lord, that they would be able to overcome such need, get good employment, get good access to the things they need. We think, of course, of those who are needy by... A dint of circumstance, such as the family, Lord, and Bethel, whose house burned down a superior God, that they would get the help they need and quickly. We pray for others, Lord, who are uh, long-time 
difficulties in their life from bad decisions when they were younger, that they would get the help that they need as well and create new habits in their life as possible, Lord, uh, to do what they can to help themselves. That they're called in, their, in, in your word and your law, God, as we all are called to take care of ourselves and to help ourselves in the best sense of the word, Lord, by your providence, to be sure, uh, that is, we have responsibilities for ourselves and those near us. And so, God, we're thankful that you've blessed us that we can help with our funds to help the needy in need. We pray, God, for our growth and sanctification, to continue to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love one another as ourselves, especially the household of faith. Be with us, we pray, this evening, for your glorious name's sake. Amen. We now have the tithes and offerings. Thank you and praise you, God above. We ask for the multiplication of these tithes and offerings and give us wisdom as a congregation and as a session, Lord, in dealing with the funds and know how to use them and distribute them. In your name alone we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let us turn to Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah 13, verse 1. Let us listen attentively to the word of God. In that day a fountain shall be opened for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for sin and for uncleanness. Let us pray. So God, we read in short order a brief summary of the gospel of Jesus Christ. As a prophecy of old, of the New Testament era, specifically when Christ came to earth, Lord, and lived and died as a man, and sits on the right hand of God right now, interceding for us day by day. So God, may we be encouraged as this passage was given to the Jews, the people of God of old, to encourage them as well, Lord, to persevere and to know that you will save them to the uttermost. In your name we pray, amen. I'm sure you recognize this passage, certainly the language of the passage, because Zechariah is sometimes known as the Old Testament book of the gospel. And we run across that. And in its many prophecies about the coming of Christ and his work among his people, it is quoted a number of times in the New Testament. We read of one such beautiful description of the gospel in chapter 3. There we read of the high priest Joshua and how he is wearing filthy garments, and God tells the angel of the Lord to remove the garments and clothe him with pure vestments. A picture of our justification and our sanctification before our Lord and Savior. The gospel in metaphorical language, picturesque language. We have here another picture, a beautiful picture of redemption in these passages. It is alluded to in the New Testament, as we will find out, and we'll sing about it today. So let us see more in particular about this 
gospel in one sentence. In that day, we read, in that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of God. But what about that day? Well, that day is the time of Christ, the coming of Christ. It's looking forward to when the Messiah will fulfill all the prophecies of the Old Testament. In that day is used many times in the Old Testament about the New Testament era, when amazing things will occur. We read, for example, in Isaiah 52, 5 and 6, Therefore my people shall know my name. Therefore they shall know in that day that I am he who speaks. Behold, it is I. And that is part of the prophecy of Christ to come. Verse 7, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings glad tidings of good things, who proclaims salvation, who says to Zion, Your God reigns. That's the prophecy of the Messiah. That is in that day. So it's prophetic language. A figure of speech to speak of a set period of time conceived of as a day beginning and an end, but a definite period of time in which the Messiah comes to earth, Bethlehem, as prophesied of old, to live and die for his people, as prophesied of old. That's called in that day. So the day there obviously is not to be taken as one 24-hour day, but rather the length of Christ's life and ministry, which is what? 33 years. Jesus was on earth for 33 years, and that entire time is in that day. The fountain of the Lord shall be opened for his people. It includes his birth in that day, the incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel. Born in Bethlehem, though small, it shall be great. The Lion of Judah, we read in Genesis. All of these are in that day. Again, not just in Zechariah here, chapter 13, verse 1, but all the other occurrences of the prophecies of Christ in Jeremiah, Isaiah, and elsewhere. It includes not only the birth of Jesus, his incarnation as the God-man, but includes his life, the life of perfection for the imperfection of his people, a healer of the people, a teacher of the nations. Of course, we know that That was mostly through the prophets, wasn't it? He specifically spoke to the house of Israel, he said. I came to speak and to bring deliverance to the house of Israel. And so, even though it speaks of in that day, and even though that focuses upon Christ for his 33 years, I do not believe it excludes the time of the apostles in the book of Acts. There, we have the preaching to the Gentiles. There, we have the fountain of blood given to all who believe. Their sins and their uncleanliness will be absolved and washed away. His birth, his life, and of course, his death. In that day includes his death and highlights his death, often in the Old Testament, in many ways as we know. In John 19.28, John 19.28 we read, Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him that is, with our Savior. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and what? Immediately, blood and water came out. 
This showed his death for his people, that he bled for his people, but obviously corresponds with our text, I would argue. In verse 36 of John 19, John continues to explain what happened. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, another scripture says, and they shall look on him whom they have pierced. We read that prior sermon, the end of Zechariah 12. They looked on him whom they have pierced, comes from those verses. And so his allusion to Zechariah 12, I would argue, does not exclude chapter 13. Why? Because there is no chapter division at the time. And they would read this as one connection of ideas, I would argue. And often in the New Testament, when they quote a little section of the Old Testament, they're not saying just those literal words, but everything around the surrounding context could be multiple words, could be an entire paragraph. Why quote the whole thing when you quote the most famous part of it, right? And so we have the blood coming from the side of Jesus. They looked upon him whom they have pierced. And that piercedness, I think, can naturally flow into the theme of the fountain, a fountain of blood that saves God's people. Blood from his side is a ready metaphor, obviously used all the time in the Bible for redemption and salvation. And so that brings us to the second point. Not just and simply in that day, but in that day a fountain is opened. Open from the side of our Lord and Savior. A fountain for his people, he says, shall be open for the house of David, for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The fountain of all, uh, for all, by the Messiah, for all his people, for God's people of old, for God's people today. We are his people. We are the Israel of God. Not a fount for everyone in the world, in the sense of they will have their sins cleansed. It is there for them in the sense that they are called to repent and come to the fountain. That's true. But whether they come or not is a different question. But what is true is those who have come, those are his people. And those people are for whom the fount is especially given. But to what end? Well, we know the rest of the verse. For sin and for uncleanness. It's a fountain of salvation. The blood of Christ, brothers and sisters, is for our deliverance. The deliverance from sin and uncleanness. It is uncleanness that implies water or blood. Because to get rid of that which is dirty, you have to wash it away. Of course, you might think scrubbing today, but back then, the first thing you do is wash it away. And of course, you know the symbolism of the Old Testament era of the sprinkling and of the washings as symbols to point to the need of cleansing from sin. 1 John 1, 7, we read, the blood of Christ, which cleanses from all sin. So you see blood and cleansing tied together explicitly there by the Apostle John because he understood and saw by the power of the Spirit the metaphors and the imagery and the symbolism of the Old Testament and put the pieces together. It's all the same. It all points to the same thing. Jesus Christ, this fountain opened, is the pierced side of Christ. Hebrews 9.13 we read, For if the blood of bulls and goats... And the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh. It washes away dirt. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without spot to God, 
Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we see again, blood and cleansing tied together. So although the word blood is not in this text, the idea is clearly there. It's a fountain of what? Of blood, of redemption, of deliverance, to cleanse for sin and for uncleanness. What, to maintain uncleanness? Obviously not. To get rid of the uncleanness, to get rid of the sin. A fountain to wash it away. The blood of Christ Jesus. If the symbolism of the Old Testament sacrifices were effective for the cleaning of the body, how much more will be the blood of Christ Jesus for the cleaning of your soul? All the more. The salvation is deliverance from sin and the consequences of sin, which is pollution. We are polluted in God's eyes with uncleanness. In Hebrews, it specifies the cleansing of our what? Conscience, right? Because when you're guilty, you feel guilty. You tell yourself you're guilty. You know you're guilty. It's up there. Even when you play games, you try to distract it. We know unbelievers do that by drinking, by drugs, by entertainment, in some other way to, to ignore and to avoid rationalizations. They're guilty conscience. But we're told here that this fount that is open in that day, the day of Christ coming for his people, is for sin and for uncleanness. And he applies it in Hebrews your conscience, to clean your conscience because it's unclean and now is clean through Christ Jesus for all those who believe and repent and live a life of repentance and believing. It's as simple as that. So that leads us to the third point. In that day, there's a fountain open for, we know, redemption, but specifically for cleansing from sin. You have a fountain for what? To wash things away? To drink or wash away? Clearly here for uncleanness it would be to wash away. Sin and uncleanness. The Hebrew word for unclean is used over 200 times in the Old Testament, with the bulk of the words being bulk of the word being used in which book of the Bible? Leviticus. Yeah, I heard you. Leviticus. Yeah, the ceremonial book of the Bible. If you touch the dead thing, you are what? Unclean. If you touch the living unclean thing, you are what? Unclean. If you touch an object that was touched by something that was unclean, what? You're unclean. <laughs> I think they're trying to make a point. God's making a point and teaching these people a lesson. Even the priest had to be holy and clean. Leviticus 16.4 He shall put on the holy linen tunic and the linen trousers on his body. He shall be girded with a linen sash and with a linen turban he shall be attired. These are holy garments that is separate and unique. That's what holy means, to be set aside. Therefore, he shall wash his body in water and put them on. They have to be clean. He has to be clean before he even wears them. The sum of the Christian life is cleanliness. That is a cleansing from sin. Leviticus 11.44, For I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore sanctify yourselves. And you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defy yourself in any manner. That's the demand of justice, to be holy and perfect. We cannot obtain that. So God gave ways, uh, symbolically in the Old Testament, to teach us in various and sundry ways how sin pollutes us, how sin makes us unclean in his sight, and all the different ways by which the cleansing blood of Christ washes away that pollution. That's what you see in the book of Leviticus. You see sin, the different ways sins affects you, it even affects houses, right? You have a, a house is, becomes unclean, a dwelling place becomes unclean. 
leprosy. So this is the lesson of old. They understood it in a way I think we struggle in the American churches. Again, in my experience, I could be wrong in many, many churches, I suppose, but everything I've run across in my life, uh, we have a very low view of sin and God's law. The Jews had a very high view. Unfortunately, they also have a high view of their own ability to obey it. <laughs> the Pharisees. What does it all mean? I think Matthew Henry gives a nice summary here. Describes how we are polluted, morally polluted. We are all so. We have sinned, and sin, and un- and sin is uncleanness. It defiles the mind and conscience. It renders us odious to God and uneasy in ourselves, unfit to be employed in the service of God, and admitted into communion with Him, as those who were ceremonially unclean were shut out of the sanctuary in the Old Testament. From that background, in that context, we see here the language when it says the fountain shall be opened for sin and for uncleanness. It is a fountain to wash away the uncleanness. It is a fountain to wash away the sins, brothers and sisters, the guilt of your sin and the pollution of your sin. It is a metaphor for the work of Christ and his blood. And his blood, of course, is shorthand for the death of Christ because obviously it's not blood itself like we have to have a piece of his blood, like the Roman Catholics teach, somehow touching our body to sanctify our soul. It's not magic blood. But it's, what, shorthand for Christ living and dying for us. The effects of the blood, the effects of his life, and everything else he did for us. This is the entire range of salvation, from calling, to regeneration, to conversion, to justification, to adoption to sanctification, and ultimately glorification when all our sins would be completely wiped away. We won't have to be daily awashed in repentance in God's grace, but it will be completely eradicated in our lives. We long for that day, don't we? And there is that day. It will come, and that day the fountain shall be for sin and for uncleanness, and it will be there all the time, opened throughout this New Testament era always having access to Christ Jesus and his blood. And ultimately, it will wash us and flood the whole world when Jesus Christ comes to wipe it all away and give us a new heaven and a new earth. That is the day of glorification. In that day is also, I would argue, in this text. Because to the prophets, remind you again, in the simplest model to understand reading the Old Testament prophets, is that to them, there are two great peaks in the future. The first coming and the second coming. And it looks like this to them. Right? Two peaks lined up. In that day, first coming. Oh, also in this day, the second coming. To them, it was all a wonderful era. It was so amazing and so transformative. And we're going to read the next few verses that even prophets would be cast out. No more prophets anymore. It's a whole new world they couldn't quite comprehend. And we saw that in Acts, right? They couldn't get their head around the fact that it's not about being a Jew anymore. Gentiles can still be Gentiles and be saved. It was that big of a change. The cleansing of the fountain for our sins and for our uncleanness, our moral uncleanness, is twofold. Justification and sanctification. Just like in chapter 3, where you had the metaphor of the garment wrapped around Joshua, here you have the metaphor of a fountain in which we bathe in and our sins are washed away. Zechariah 3.3 3, we read, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. 
Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garment from him. And to him he said, that is to Joshua, See, I have removed your iniquity from you, and I will clothe you with rich robes. You see that? I've removed your sin, your iniquity, your violations, your sins and your transgressions of my law from you. And I'm sure Joshua was thinking, I don't feel that way. Feelings aren't relevant when it comes to justification, is it? And I said, let them put on clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and they put the clothes on him. They put a pure vestment around him. So the fount here, referring to justification, that is our legal standing before God's law court. Before our legal standing was through the person of Adam, just like in the courts right now, your children have a legal standing in the courts, not by themselves, but through their parents. They can't stand on their own until they become of age. We recognize these things. And it's the same in the saving of our soul. And in the first case, it was Adam. He fell, we fell in him. In the second case, the second Adam, Christ Jesus, in him we are raised up for newness of life. He represents us. This is the legal identification with our Savior, the federal head of the new human race. Explicitly connected to Romans 3.24, being justified, we being justified freely by his grace, Through what? The redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood. By his blood. So their blood is tied to the specific act of propitiation, which is satisfying the divine wrath of God. That's what happens in justification. Like the pure new vestment put on Joshua, we have the pure new vestment of Christ's righteousness wrapped around ourselves, even though we still sin. We are sinners, brothers and sisters, saved by grace. Praise be to his name. So God sees Jesus and not our sins, but also the cleansing founts for our sins and for our uncleanness for all of the house of David, for all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, for God's people is a cleansing act of sanctification as well. This is the inward renewal, the change, the subjective uh, mortification and growth and holiness that we often think of as salvation as opposed to the objective, external, and never-changing justification. Such were some of you, we read in 1 Corinthians 6.11, but you are what? Washed. You are sanctified. And you are justified. It gives a list of sins there. I suppose you can use the same list in 1 Peter we read this morning. Of the various and sundry sins. He said, this is what you used to be, and the people don't understand why you're not that way anymore, and they speak evil of you. That's your sanctification. You stop acting various and sundry sins, but I still sin, Pastor. Yes, but you also stop sinning elsewhere. You have stopped sinning. That actually counts in our sanctification, as it were. It's a real thing. Because we are his children, he sees it as a real activity. Unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own, what? Blood, Revelation 1.5. So there it is again, cleansing and the blood, which of course is shorthand for the work of Christ for his people. And of course, blood is a very vivid and striking metaphor. That's why it's used over and over again. When you see the blood, it reminds you of his sacrifice that he literally died for you, brothers and sisters. He knew you were going to sin today or tomorrow and yesterday and the next day, but he died for you anyway. That's That's what it means. And he hath made us kings, we continue reading Revelation 1, and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. To be priests and kings, our acts of sanctification in our life, 
to act like a king, to act like priests. That is, we have the, the goal of being holy and the goal of uh, leading and having dominion over sin and wherever we are in our life. And apply sanctification, otherwise known as setting aside for a special purpose. We are cleansed. That's the language of the Old Testament, to be holy, to be sanctified. You saw that when I read that from Leviticus, the parallel words, they're synonymous. And to be clean is also a synonym for that as well. Like the priests of old who had to wear clean clothes and wash themselves, so are we in Christ Jesus, even now, daily, as we repent of our sins, we wash away our guilt by the blood of Christ Jesus. And we carry on in our lives, we put on the garments of righteousness. That is, we do our duty in life as a son, as a daughter, our our call and vocation in life, and do it as unto the Lord. It's a a service, it's a job, like the priest had a job. He had things he had to do. That's what we do. We don't give sacrifices anymore like they did, but we do give sacrifices of praise and the sacrifice of our obedience, quoting language from the New Testament, because that's the metaphor of the old. And thus we are holy and pure and clean before God, not just with respect to the law courts, i.e. justification, but also subjectively we are called what? Over and over again in the New Testament. Saints. Peter, with his big mouth, was what? A saint. And by his spirit, he has worked in us and given us the power through the fount for our salvation our deliverance from sin and from uncleanliness, uncleanness. We, brothers and sisters, are holy to the Lord. Holiness is written across our forehead. You don't feel that way, it does not matter. You are that way. And you're called to carry on, to fight the world, the flesh, and the devil, and to do your duty and calling, and to know that you can go every day, because that fountain is opened, and stays open, never shuts. And you can always go to him, for forgiveness, asking for forgiveness and the cleansing of his blood to know that he will and can and shall forgive you. For he is not unfaithful. He is not unjust, we are told, over and over again. He has promised it to his people. We see it again in the Old Testament. Over and over again, they have been disobedient. What has God done? Sure, he disciplined them, but he never disowned them. He always had his people. He always had his remnant. The fount of Jesus is for sin, brothers and sisters, and so points to both our justification by Christ's blood and our sanctification by his blood. Christ came to earth to be the fount of life for we who are here today. Let us praise and thank his name. Amen. Let us pray. We do thank you, God. We do praise you. We ask, Lord, that we continue to be encouraged. As the saints of old were encouraged, as they struggled with their sin, they would see judgment upon them and upon their nation and wonder, what have I done? And God says, you know what you've done. Repent and you shall be cleaned. And they were, and so shall we. Amen. Let us sing hymn 
bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.